So this week I wanted to talk about um, workplace relationships and slightly specific um, kind of relationship, workplace affairs. And this stems Ooh. from, I know. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash from San Diego State University. Today, Sesson will bring us a conversation about workplace affairs. Ooh, steamy. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Older Adults on the Dating Market, the Role of Family Caregiving Responsibilities. Ooh, steamy. <laughs> and then in good or bad advice, we're going to uh, talk about some advice from TikTok and Instagram about parenting teens. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, or Instagram us all at attachpodcast, or go straight to the source, attachpodcast.com, and send us a message. As always, for bonus content and to support this lovely podcast, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash attached, and become a patron. Also, as always, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all of those lovely places, please consider to rate and review it, and of course, subscribe. But before we get to all of the goodness of this lovely episode, what's up? How's it going? Woods? So uh, we are in the middle of a uh, snow slash ice storm here in Texas, which never happens. Um, and so what I am up to is I am currently wearing this like amazing um, vest that my parents got me for Christmas, actually. And you can see here if you're watching this episode on YouTube video and if you're not, it's right above like the emblem on the left side of this vest. There's like a button here because it has a battery pack inside. Oh. And when you turn it on, ah. it heats up and it stays heated. So I am inside and safe, but I'm also warm and toasty, like literally from the neck down. It's an amazing invention. And they use them all the time up north where they are. And I admired it. And so, of course, I received one immediately. Naturally. Um, yeah. So uh, I am very toasty. Do you sleep with it? No, but that is, I had not leveled up to that yet. Uh, I have transitioned from wearing it during the day. Sometimes I will like put it on over my pajamas um, because why do I want, I don't want to be cold like at oh. the end of the night. So, but I haven't taken it to bed. I, oh boy. <laughs> okay. Well, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what an electric blanket is also for, which is yeah, yeah, very popular this season. Oh, <laughs> like, yes, yeah, heating like, pads. But like this thing, it heats up your neck around where this like vet. I mean, it all the way down. Very toasty. Ex talk to me more about all the way down. Like all, it's just a vest. I just mean like oh, it's vest. not just like your midsection. Right, your torso. You know what I mean? Like it starts from top, like all to the bottom. The whole thing is all warm. What brand is this? May I ask? Um, yes, it says Aurora. O R O R O. Aurora. I've not done any of my own um, investigations into this brand. I received it. I appreciate it, and uh, I recommend it. Received it. 
appreciate it <laughs> recommend it yeah That's i'm writing say. this down you might have a <laughs> is it a that cold in san exam. diego <laughs> it actually is really no it really is i can't i'm besides myself about it especially given the gas and electric prices here in uh, mm. san diego in particular which are like one of the highest in the nations and i'm paying a lot of money to be really cold it's really oh. quite <laughs> discouraging <laughs> Yes. So this is a heated vest situation would uh Oh, it could save me a lot of money. I really, really we have solar, but we can't seem to get off the grid because there's a nine different reasons why they haven't officially approved the process yet. And so I'm like, mm. please get us off the grid mm -hmm. so I can stop <laughs> having mini heart attacks every time I get my mid usage mm. bill from the gas and electric company. Mid usage? What is this mid usage bill? They just sort of want to prepare you for what your monthly bill might look like. Currently, I'm uh, close to $400 mid-month. and I Oh, mid-month? This oh. is mid-month. And we are one of those really careful users where we use things off-peak and off-off-peak in order to like, and it's still what it is. Wow. So San Diego is a wonderful place, but it is painful um, in some regards. <laughs> Wowie, wow, wow. So I will be investing in one of those vests for each of my family members. <laughs> and the dog. And the dog. <laughs> so funny. Uh, so cold temperatures haven't really hit us terribly yet here in East Tennessee, um, which is lovely. It is raining today, but uh, such is life. At least it's not snowing and icing. Knock on wood. We had a lovely couple of weeks. The um, baby has started to talk 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 all these sorts of words so adorable his currently his new favorite word is back so like i think at his school he's learning to put back materials and stuff so anytime we do anything like we get the milk out for him or we i i, I don't know like turn on the tv or uh get out of bed it's back back so like the milk goes back 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 like everything is going back to its place oh. which also is a great skill for a near two-year-old to have is to keep the house uh, organized and tidy um <laughs> but it is so adorable because at first i wasn't really sure because back and snack sound very similar and he also says snack a lot so i was getting those confused at first like do you want a snack you like you literally have the milk in your hand like you literally have food right now you want another snack and but no he was saying back back in the refrigerator um so a little bit of a learning curve for the parental units but it's so adorable this stage of life is both uh extremely taxing because it's a lot but also it's very very cute how rapidly they grow and develop and all of those things so lovely times and trying to appreciate the small stuff while not getting any sleep you know oh. One day it will return. Yeah. I hope so. From your lips <laughs> to God's saying. ears. Yeah. If not, I'm coming after you, Sessa. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives 
and how we view relationships. Sasson, what do you have for us this week? So this week, I wanted to talk about um, workplace relationships and slightly specific um, kind of relationship, workplace affairs. And this stems from, I know, every time I talk about infidelity, I think how painful, how difficult for people, but there's something about engaging in conversation (laughs) that makes it feel really fun and naughty. So... I admit that there's that side of it too, but this, you know, um, stem from some things I was reading recently. And some of this has been unfolding for a while now, but um, very recently um, to good morning, America, um, former now um, broadcasters um, who would do a morning segment together. I don't watch the show, but I've heard of them and I've seen them. Um, Amy Rohrbach and uh, TJ Holmes. Um, were released from the show because of an alleged workplace affair. They were both married during the time that they um, developed the relationship. And since then, I think all sides have decided to divorce. Um, And I won't speculate on any of the details um, about what happened or how it happened, but it did sort of bring to light this particular sort of complicated set of dynamics that could occur when two people in the workforce um, come together. And workforce relationships are not uncommon. Um, Around 65% or so of people report engaging in some kind of office work relationship um, with someone at some point in their career, right? Um, I imagine that might be even more. Um, I think um, what is challenging about that and what it becomes even more challenging when you're in a um, significant sort of monogamous relationship already and then engaging in these workplace relationships. Um, And so I wanted to talk a little bit today about workplace affairs and the impact, right, that that has on the work environment and um, the individuals involved and, of course, coworkers. um, And, you know, if you think about these relationships, they can be pretty polarizing, you know, for people in the workforce, assuming, you know, that the relationship doesn't work out. Um, you have people who tend to want to take sides in these things. You have the fact that um, the research shows that it can affect uh, workplace productivity, not just among the individuals who are engaging in that relationship, but others are pretty distracted by what's happening. And when you add the affair component to it, um, it brings sort of a whole set of like moral considerations mm. and that can also things a bit more complicated gossip um and then there's the concern if it's somebody who's in a supervisor position position of authority um there's concern about favoritism and how um you know that might play out there's conflict that can occur whether the people in the relationship still or have broken up and there is sort of tension that um you know stems from that that can affect not just the people involved but again the co-workers. Um, there's also sexual harassment, right? Factors to consider and how um, during and in the aftermath that stuff um, claims might be um, brought up that are, um, you know, very concerning to many people involved. Um, and when I thought about this and I thought, okay, well, what are sort of the policy, sort of the legal uh, recourses here? Like, what does policy say about that? And I know that um, the couple that Good Morning America co-anchors um, 
I believe had sort of considered filing some kind of suit. And I thought, huh, interesting, given, you know, what the situation was, did they have any leg to stand on? How does that actually work if it's considered disruptive to the work environment? You know, um, could they actually say that they were, um, you know, treated unfairly or unjust? Mm. Or um, but, you know, there is no sort of legal recourse in terms of like legal mandate that two people in the work and space cannot come together. And there's no difference in terms of legal difference between people who are, um, you know, engaging in workplace affairs or just workplace relationships and, you know, doing so outside of being in any relationship with other people. I thought it was interesting because as somebody who might be running an office or a company, you know, I imagine one would want to set the kind of policies that would really discourage this because of all the ways that it could affect the work environment. And yet, um, my understanding as I was reading more about this is that you can only do so much, right? You can really set up ideally policies that um, encourage people to be transparent about the relationships that they plan on being in or have started to develop. And so that the HR right folks can really help them set some clear boundaries about what is and isn't considered appropriate in, in the context of if they are going to be in the relationship, how to handle that and how to minimize sort of the implications for everyone around that, which I think is really important. So, but I was just thinking also about like, gosh, imagine um, a partner who, you know, discovers that their partner has developed feelings or physically been in some way involved with a workplace partner. And that person wants to stay in the job. Maybe they've discontinued the relationship, something, right? But how are you okay with them continuing to go to the same space and be in the same proximity of somebody who that they've engaged in some kind of a relationship with? Imagine that could be very difficult. I'm mm -hmm. sure in terms of trying to rebuild trust and trying to rebuild connection, like how do you do that in those contexts? I know some people will leave those environments, but some people don't, right? They build a career there. They are in a place where um, it would be financially a hardship for their families if they were to leave. And so I imagine some spouses have to feel like um, there's no choice but to stay. And I just think it's a really, the word messy keeps coming to mind. It gets really yeah. messy and complicated. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. So I just wanted to throw it out there, like what your thoughts were, and whether you all have come across some literature, you know, um, research on this topic. Yeah, I think it's also interesting with the affair component, but also what you're talking about, the 65% of office workers say they had an inter-office relationship. Like, I think there's also a similar high statistic about the number of people who have met their partner in the work environment as well. So while there are certainly the negatives that you mentioned, um, the affairs, the if it goes badly, the <laughs> reduction in productivity, um, there are also the benefits because people have found their, you know, long-term partners uh, through these relationships as well. Um, but yeah, messy, complicated, um, and it can swing either way. I keep coming back to like, if I am the partner of someone who is aware of a relationship that one has had and that person is still in proximity and contact and some level has to work how how do I be okay with that? How do I support my partner in that career, in that work? Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot to ask. And it makes me think, gosh, if you are someone thinking of 
you know, looking outside of the relationship to look within the workforce is really additionally problematic, right? Because if the partner were to find out that doesn't just affect the personal life, but it affects your professional life as well. Mm -hmm. And I think we all sort of, when you mix personal and professional, things can get much more complicated and, you know, but there is a risk involved when you cross that line. Um, and the implications it can have on so many people, um, not just in your personal life, but also in your professional life, right? I think it's a real important consideration for people who are considering or who are starting to develop feelings for people who in the workforce, like what that would actually mean. It could have devastating effects that go just beyond the partner. And also, what does that mean about the relationship that they're currently in? What is it maybe sort of um, say that they might be needing or missing, or um, if they're wanting to preserve that initial relationship, uh, might they need some professional help to do that? Um, because that's a really great reason to engage in couples therapy if you are um, finding yourself, I think, developing feelings for somebody in the workplace that isn't your original partner, and that's not something maybe you're feeling too certain about pursuing and you're really wanting to preserve that initial relationship, it's a really good reason to get engaged in couples therapy um, and get some assistance around how to navigate that and how to rebuild um, any trust that's been lost, but also sort of how to figure out um, how to have your relationship going forward, how to engage with each other and feel uh, supported and connected. Yeah. And it is, I think that support is really important. I've had some couples who've come my way, who've had those particular situations and the partner's having a really hard time really rebuilding trust because they don't know what yeah. that partner is doing in those eight hours. And a lot of the conversations is like, how do we help you both set some boundaries um, that the person can try to follow through with at, in the workspace without also the other person feeling like their professional space is being controlled or that they don't have that autonomy in that space. Well, uh, you know, I've had some people say, well, you lost that when you did what you did, right? But it's a really hard thing when somebody, especially partners start to get involved in each other's professional domain and, you know, work, they can feel really protective of that. But also if something like this has happened, there's some of that you have to really negotiate. And I wouldn't say give up, but like you have to be willing to let your partner into that professional domain a little bit because they are understandably there's concern there it's like what are they doing you know um and really wanting to trust requires that active you know effort right of showing like i'm going to go out of my way to do things to show you that um i can be trusted and, and that means having a say in one's personal mm -hmm. and one's professional work as well for some amount of time at least sometimes But yeah, I agree. There's a lot of people who come together and get, you know, um, married who find each other in the workspace, but <laughs> it goes both ways. So, Today, we're doing an academic deep dive into new research that explores what it's like to be on the dating market for older singles. In a new Journal of Marriage and Family article titled Older Adults on the Dating Market, the Role of Family Caregiving Responsibilities, Dr. Lauren Harris at the University of New Hampshire investigates what looking for a romantic partner looks like for older adults. Often when we talk about research on relationship formation, that's 
the formation of a relationship, obviously. There's a focus on young adults, but there's a growing population of older single adults. In 2020, more than a third of adults 65 and older were neither married nor living with a partner. One third. We're also living longer, divorcing more, and for older adults, there's an increased likelihood of widowhood. There is a gender difference here as well, where almost half of older women are single, but only a fifth of men are single. Another important difference for single older adults is that their goals for seeking a romantic relationship may be very, very different than when they were younger. They're not looking to start a family and have children. They're well past that. And if they already have kids or grandkids actually of their own, may need to figure out how to balance that life with building a new one. So if all of these older single adults are putting themselves back out there, back on that sweet, sweet dating market, but it seems like it might look different than when they were younger. What in fact does dating look like? when you're older um i'm not gonna be taking notes because i'm gonna stay hopeful but like in the back of my head maybe in like 30 years oh that was so dark anyway sarah please share with us the uh trends on the dating market for these older folk sure yeah that was a little bit of a dark segue um that's okay you never know you're just planning for all possibilities no matter how remote yeah. Um, so you got to so, plan for uh, the rainy days, you know, as they say. <laughs> uh, as they say. Oh, see, yeah, I think the alternate title for this paper, Rainy Days Among Dating Older Adults. Um, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> I do always think that the use of the term market in this context, which everybody, I mean, it's not just a research term, right? Like thinking about the dating market. Like we talk about people like they are pieces of meat just sort of putting themselves out there for sale, which is... Um, I imagine sometimes how people uh, feel when they're going through this process. Um, This researcher is also sort of couching um, her study in sort of a more um, research-oriented sort of theoretical term, uh, ideas around the marriage market. And that's really this idea about um, how in research, especially, we can try to explain singles' approach to dating. So... Um, there's lots of different factors that impact that. So if you're in an area where there are a lot of local singles and they are singles that you are really interested in partnering with, et cetera, right? There's more opportunity for you to be dating. Right. They're ready Um, to mingle. They're single and they're ready to mingle. That's right. The third alternate title for this paper. (laughs) (laughs) If only this author had come to us first, we really would have. Listen. Uh, Think of all the We have some ideas. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, for follow-up studies. Um, There's also obviously costs and benefits that we sort of think about uh, when we're thinking about possible partners and also characteristics of our own life that influence dating. So when there are imbalanced sex ratios in a region or in a part of life, that can have a really strong influence on mate choice. Talk to me uh, what specifically you mean by imbalance of sex ratios. So what you had said earlier, Patricia, is Mm -hmm. that there's a lot more uh, women who are single in older adulthood than there are men. Some of that is because uh, traditionally and uh, probably still the case, men tend to prefer dating younger women, whereas women tend to prefer partnering with partners that are the same age or older. And so... um, there's also a combination of women uh, often outlive male partners, uh, tend to be healthier, et cetera. I see. These are 
averages, et cetera. But then when you have way more women on the market than you have men, that impacts um, my selection if I'm a woman looking to date a man versus uh, in the reverse. Yeah, the men have a lot more um, selection. It's really awesome. And uh, older heterosexual men, I suppose, they have uh, the whole entire field that they can play. How thrilling. Did your rainy days get stormy? Are they? Is it looking <laughs> real dark? Um, oh, man. <laughs> Uh, and so um, what we know among younger adults is that um, being a parent is an example of when you look at somebody's opportunities on the market, that can have a really big impact on partnering. So for younger adults, that's a really big constraint for women, not so much for men. Single moms are also less likely to marry if their kids live in the home or when their um, partner is a man without kids, but it doesn't affect men the same. But we're not exactly sure what this looks like for older adults. So what this researcher did was she did interviews, qualitative interviews, with 100 heterosexual, single, older men and women. So 50 men, 50 women. Um, ages range between 60 and 83, and she recruited them from four online dating websites. So Ooh. she put an ad to recruit them from. So they're already attempting the market. Uh, they're already um, serving themselves up. That's really oh. uh, that's really not necessary. <laughs> I don't know if that one should it's, be an alternative title. No, I know we don't want to imply that that's how we feel. Um, so uh, there's equal proportions of this sample were retired versus fully employed, about 40% each, which is really also felt dark to me that like almost half of these people are 60 to 83 were still fully employed. Yeah. Just because my goal is not necessarily to be on the marriage market after 60, but it is to no longer be working. I would like to be off of the employment market, the job market, per se. Uh, oh, my God. That's, that's, the hopes I mean, you have. Their average age in this sample is like 65, 66. Like, I got to go home. I can still be doing this in 25 years. That's not my life goals. Rainy days at home, please. Under blankets. Um, <laughs> Um, so about half of the sample had kids and grandkids. A third had kids, not grandkids. So just sort of in general, when you're thinking about what their life context looks like. So what she interviewed these people about were questions like, what are you looking for in a romantic partner? What are your deal breakers? What do you notice when you're looking through someone's online dating profile? And she found that family caregiving responsibilities, what she calls care work, impacts romantic relationship formation for these older adults in three main ways okay so first uh -huh. caring for others like kids grandkids aging parents sure. uh, prevented people from even joining the dating market so a lot of people reported that they held off on sort of thinking about dating uh let alone trying it while they were spending a lot of time maybe helping support adult kids or sharing caregiving responsibilities for grandkids or while they were taking care of parents um, who are older and ill, etc. So even though these people were actively on a dating website... They had held off. Yeah, they're talking about retrospectively. Okay. Yeah, that makes they had held off on this. They felt like they weren't able to divide the time between the two. This was mostly women, but it did impact both men and women. Okay. For women, it was kids, grandkids, and parents. Men held off if they were caring for a sick partner, for example. Um, I mean, so that's it, nice it of them to not be on the dating market <laughs> if they're caring for a sick partner. How noble. <laughs> It's going to make every... What a beautiful film. I would watch that film. I waited until she was gone. And I deserve an award. That film is out there. I feel like I've seen it. I just don't remember. What... Oh, man. 
See, I'm not. <laughs> so there are gender differences. Obviously. I'm going to say that the way I can already feel we're going to interpret these, this is the least gender oh. of them. <laughs> and so this, this researcher did a really nice job of giving a really balanced take, I think, on what she found. Good for her. Um, it's, yeah, <laughs> rainy days ahead indeed. So <laughs> the second main way that care work impacted uh, dating is that when um, people decided to date, mm. care work had an impact on one's desirability on the market, oh, meaning course. how they were perceived. Oh. Um and so, uh, of course, that was gendered. So women were penalized for performing care work. So men were not interested in dating women who had obvious care work responsibilities. Uh, they perceived it both as a barrier to uh, growing a strong relationship, but they also described it as a catalyst for breakups. Because um, they didn't men- have 100% of their time. Uh, yes. And men became more desirable. <laughs> Uh, when they were perceived as being close to their families, there we go. Um, that was really sort of connoting um, that they had family values, that this was going to be a partner that had some commonalities with them. Like, this is something women were drawn to. Men were uh, not drawn towards this. They found this to be a less attractive quality. <laughs> Um, and then the third way is that the threat of having to perform additional care work in a relationship prevented women, but not men, from pursuing partners. Meaning, if they knew that somebody had young kids, if they knew a man had young children, or that they themselves might be ill, or they were older, they were maybe perceiving them as maybe going to need nursing care Uh, soon. Uh, So if women thought that the relationship would lead to additional care work that they would have to take on, like, I'm going to have to raise his kids, I'm going to have to nurse him through old age, they were less interested in partnering. Men didn't express expectations that a woman would do this care work but women assumed that they would end up performing it so that was less desirable for them so while i read it sort of um it did have a flavor for me while i was reading it i didn't intend for this to sound so dark uh (laughs) i will say that it is sort of interesting i think her findings about um that provide some evidence for how providing care for a child impacts dating across the life yeah. bar. So this looks different, but if I'm providing care for um, a younger child as a younger single mom, I might be less likely to be looking for a very seriously committed relationship. I might be less likely to date. That's also appears to be true in older age. I'm going to, man or woman might hold off uh, yeah. on pursuing relationships. Um, I do think... <laughs> Men were not penalized when their kids lived with them. Uh, women were penalized for having kids, even if those kids did not live with them. Oh, interesting. So the caregiving responsibilities um, affecting how you're perceived on the, quote, market are pretty, uh, they felt pretty intense. Now, this is qualitative research. So this is people's explanations of their experiences, which is really, really valuable. Um, and also, it's a really big sample. I mean, 100 people to Oh, qualitative yeah analyze all those interviews my goodness um but we're really sort of relying on this uncompensated uh family caregiving labor that women do including in older adulthood and it's at the expense of their romantic relationships of their sort of enjoying their own personal life which doesn't just affect women seeking to date men it also affects men seeking to date women that's who is out there on the market. Um, And I think another possible takeaway is that third theme 
indicates uh, in part that women are interested in independence. Mm. They're not looking to date to pick up a partner's caregiving work that they would otherwise do if they weren't dating, right? Um, and it's possible older men might just need to be willing to adjust and be very clear about, I don't have expectations that you're going to take this on, or this is uh, how this could look if we were partnering. Um once you sort of maybe are talking about a relationship because without adjusting and uh, not letting that care work become gendered, yeah. women are saying, I don't want that in older life. Like, I just did that. Yeah, I did I'm that for the last uh, 40 years. I, mean, I don't want yours too. <laughs> yeah. The, that third point the, is really interested in the context of the imbalance of gender ratios that you were talking about too. Mm-hmm. So... Does that mean that women who are not interested in the caregiving, they end up just, just is the wrong word, they end up preferring the route of being an older single who maybe dates around rather than being in um, a long-term committed relationship with a man? I'm curious about that for future research. Yeah. Well, and that maybe they're sort of looking more for men with older kids and or who are maybe younger or appear healthier or um yeah get some it is a really interesting selection some cougars out there am i right (laughs) well you turned it around (laughs) not so rainy for there's always a silver lining what's a song i just made up no it's beautiful (laughs) interesting get out there older women get those younger men that's the takeaway I didn't put it, but yes, I think you're right. (laughs) Just kidding. I think it's interesting. The landscape is changing though, you know, and as people get older and it's like, I think this kind of research is really important because, you know, you're seeing more and more people, like you said, who are living to grow into, you know, and to have opportunities for this sort of second wave of life and really meaningful you know long-term relationships here we're not talking about just like these short companionships so i do think we need more research in this area to say Mm -hmm. to really help people understand how to navigate all of this very unfamiliar terrain um and especially as i hear more and more about um you know young adults who can you know in large numbers are moving back home for various different reasons but like the implications that has on their families. I, you know, you think about yeah. in some context, but I don't think about like what that means for, you know, the parents' opportunity to really build their own right. relationships later. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I, I think more and more stuff like this is helpful to see. Yep. Um, I agree. I'm excited for what's to come. Woohoo! Boo! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, families, our friends. We see advice about how to be in these relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social medias, blogs, and those numerous top 10 lists that love to pop up in our feed. But this is going to be a shock to you guys. Hold on to your seats. A lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. What? I know. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad or somewhere in the middle. 
If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. Email at us, attachpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, the Instagram, or the Facebook, all at attachpodcast, or go straight to that source, attachpodcast.com, and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And as always, share it with your loved ones. People love podcast recommendations. I hear it all the time. Oh my God, I just can't wait to get another podcast recommendation. Also, this is thrilling. You guys are going to be excited about this. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Every episode, we have bonus good or bad advice content on our patreon page specifically for our patrons you guys so if you want that sweet sweet bonus content and also maybe want to support this wee little pod of ours consider becoming a member a patron if you will at patreon.com slash attached so today we're going to talk about just a little bit of advice that um i've seen on the social medias um this first one is by at youth rising coach on instagram about how to improve your relationship with your teenager. So according to At Youth Rising, sometimes your teen might be afraid to talk to you for four main reasons. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through this and let her tell you about the first reason, then we're talking about it, second, third, fourth, and so on. Are you ready? I can tell you guys are amped. Oh my gosh, I hold back, you guys. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't handle it right now. It takes a lot of courage for your teen to come talk to you. They want to share your, their life with you. They want to talk to you, but sometimes they're afraid. And I'll tell you the four reasons they're afraid. One, they're afraid you won't believe them. When they say they forgot and you insist they're ignoring you, their trust in you goes down. Number one, they are afraid you won't believe them. What do you think? What's Sorry, I was watching Sesame. Um, yeah, no, I actually think that's not just specific to uh, adolescence. I think adults feel this way yeah. sometimes too, right? That when we are having something we're struggling with, one of the most powerful experiences we can have is to share that with somebody and have them tell you that they believe you, that they believe this is your experience, that they believe this is hard for you, and to validate that. I think when you're a young person, I think this can absolutely show up when there's also this combined experience of feeling like you may be alone, you may be unusual, you may be unique, no one else maybe has this experience. So not only am I sort of trying to figure out who I am, but I'm not exactly sure that I'm normal, right? That this is what I'm thinking or feeling, experiencing, that I might be the only one going through this. Uh, it's a pretty common adolescent experience. So to share that with somebody, if they're coming to you, I would say that that's absolutely very common, that they're afraid that you're not going to believe them. You're not going to take it seriously. Yeah. Sasson, thoughts? I agree with that. I feel like um, I'm trying to think about it also across different relational contexts, but in regards to the youth, particularly um, adolescents, I do think they tend to already have, you know, concerns or are working through sort of that identity piece. Mm -hmm. And I think um, part of that is like, 
not feeling maybe seen or completely like accepted for who they are, you know? And so that part about like, do you like not feeling like whatever they say, you can trust that or you could valid. I think that there's already some insecurity there. Right. And I think um, that plays into that. I think so when a teenager who might struggle with their sort of, who am I like, do people accept me for who I am? That extends to their family, right? And the more we can tell our youth, the more I think we can tell our children, you know, I may not understand why you did what you did. I may be frustrated, but I believe that was your experience. Yeah. Um, that's powerful. I think we tend to think by acknowledging people's experience when we don't understand it, like there's something we're giving up or just like excusing mm-hmm. behavior. But it's like, I think those are things that we can yeah. really part um, better. I agree. And I think uh, to you guys' point, this is an across the lifespan. I think this is something that we could do with um, young kids, older kids, adults, friendships, loved ones, and all of those things. I do kind of picking up a little bit of what you're saying, Sesson, can see like, let's say your teen has forgot something five times in a row. You know, it is really easy to say like, I don't believe you, right? Like, I think you're lying to me about this. But I think to this person's point, resisting that um, and maybe acknowledging that. So, you know what? This is the fifth time in a row that you've forgotten this. Um, Let's make a plan to figure out why you keep on forgetting it so often and maybe find some strategic um, like behaviors or things that we can do to help you remember because it's not okay at this point. Um, and I think having that conversation rather than just the blanket, I don't believe you, um, could be a more constructive way to do that because I could also see how saying, oh, okay, I believe you could easily move into the realm of permissive parenting, right? Just like, oh yeah, whatever you say goes. But sometimes there are behaviors that do need to change and having an open conversation about that and planning with your teen or younger person or friend or partner or whoever it is about how maybe to change because it's getting frustrating for you, I think is also an okay conversation to add on to what she's saying. Okay, moving to number two. I think this is a good uh, bounce here because this one is they are afraid you will dismiss them. They're worried you'll dismiss them. Oh, don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. You'll be just fine. So number two, they're afraid you'll dismiss them. What do you think? Good or bad advice? No, I think that's good advice. I mean, I don't have a teen yet, although nine feels like closer (laughs) to being a teenager than I thought it would have been. Um, in my head, she's still like a small toddler, older toddler, maybe like, you know, starting school Five, age. Four. And then I look at her and I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you're like almost middle school age. I know. Um, and this is a hard balance to want to sort of um, get clarification about what her experience has been. Like if she's upset by something at school and uh, I notice this comes up for me, especially if I'm stressed, like my aim is not to shut her down, but my aim is to soothe her. And I think it can feel very dismissive if I don't understand first what her experience was. And that storytelling involves a lot of details. So if I'm already like dysregulated, exhausted, overwhelmed, 
I really have to work on self-soothing to like let her explain the whole thing. And if I, even when I'm like asking clarification questions, sometimes she'll feel like that's dismissive, like I'm trying to cut her off. So I just really have to like watch this. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense too when, um, especially if kids have had repeated experiences of that when they're younger, or if like school conveys that a lot, like you're fine, just settle down, you'll be fine. this would make a lot of sense for a teenager to feel like this too. Like you're going to say that I just need to either figure it out myself or like this isn't as big of a deal. Like I'm being dramatic, but it doesn't feel like I'm making, when you're upset, it, right, it doesn't feel like I'm making this up. I'm not trying to make this worse than it is. I need you to believe that this is as upsetting for me as it looks like it is, even if in your mind it's hard to imagine why that is. I think this is really important. Yeah. Sesson? Yeah, I support that quick to try to make sense of their experience for them by sort of filtering it through our like own reaction to it. And one of the things I've tried to do with myself and I've been trying to do as a parent and like encouraging this also among others is this idea of um, trying to ask your child age appropriately, of course, like what meaning they're making of the experience that they had. So whatever conversation we have isn't necessarily about like the details of the event in terms of like, but instead like how they're making sense of what it means to them. Right. And so that to me has been helpful because it gives me more sense, like how they're internalizing it, how that is affecting their sense of self, all of those things. And so there's like a deeper sort of connection to that experience beyond like, I was frustrated or yeah, this happened and it sucked. It's like, okay, well, this seems to have happened a couple of times now. Is there something that you're like story you're telling yourself about like who you are now that this has happened a few times, you know? So, and my child says very little to me. So um, in general, like that meaning making takes a lot of work to get to that mm-hmm. point. <laughs> I get yes, no, if on a good day. Um <laughs> Uh, responses from it (laughs) so yeah Yeah. dismissing our children is one of those things we have to be really it's so easy to do it without even knowing we're doing it it's um yeah I agree it's one of those um I think we had a similar conversation about capitalization like it sometimes takes a lot less than what you think it does um and just being in the moment um but it's also can be really hard when we're super stressed out um so number three is are afraid you'll try and fix them they're afraid you'll try to fix them they want to share things with you they want to just be seen and heard and as parents we need to learn to put away the toolbox put away trying to help them feel better and just listen and see them okay thoughts yeah, I'd say that's good advice too. This is, uh, again, I really am thinking about how many adults would say this, uh, especially in like romantic relationships, n- not wanting a partner to move in and fix something, uh, especially not too quickly, um, but wanting to be heard. So I think this is just, again, really good advice across the life course. So uh, for adolescents, for teens too, um, that it is very, extremely valuable to really actively listen to make sure that you understand to validate how they're feeling and what their experience has been and then there's a period on that sentence Uh, and I think we often move 
past that piece so quickly to try to make it better. Mm -hmm. And that comes out of a place of not wanting to see our kids suffer, not wanting to see our partners suffer, not wanting to see our work colleagues suffer, our patients suffer, right? That... Um, and also that's a caring drive, but it can also be tied to anxiety about wanting to make it better right. very quickly. And we then lose out on that really powerful intervention at the start that is validation and listening. Sasa, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I support everything um, Sarah just said. And I do have a fear that, um, and maybe because I'm watching too many movies that demonstrate this, but like my child growing up and not knowing how to like, really rely on their instinct and their own you know efforts to like address situations right being like overwhelmed and shutting down and just not having the ability to really face adulthood and the complicated things that like life will bring them and just taking care of things for them in a way when they're young that they just don't have that ability and I think growing up in an immigrant home and a home where like you know I dealt with a lot of different racial issues within school I had to learn how to on some level, deal with things on my own without my parents' support because they just didn't understand what I was going mm-hmm. through. And that has helped me become resilient in ways as an adult that have really benefited me. So I'm really mindful of making sure that I raise a child who knows how to be prepared for yeah. the stuff that's going to come his way as an interracial, like, you know. And so for me, it's really important not to just throw out solutions and sometimes just step back emotionally connect to him about what his experience is say hey if you need my support on it like no I'm here to help you bounce like in any six so I say it in a way that's appropriate for him but I, I try really hard not to just get in there and um fix it yourself so it's very difficult especially when they're hurting especially yeah. if there's tears involved that's when it's like the, you know, it yeah, and a hug goes a long way. That's not fixing it, right? Like a hug or just sitting there. I hear what each of you guys are saying. I, I do think the one thing maybe she doesn't say is that makes this type of advice for teens and our children different than adults is that part of our role as parents is also teaching them those tools, right? So yes, we're not going to whip out our toolbox and fix it for them. We're going to listen to them. And then the next step isn't fixing it for them, but teaching them a variety of tools. Like the tools that I am teaching my oldest are very different from that I'm teaching, not very different, but they're different than what I'm teaching my middle child, the two-year-old. He's just like cries now and you hug him and that it's fixed. Um, but that will, you know, change as he gets older. But figuring out what works for them and teaching them those tools, I think is also a really important thing for us to do as parents. But there is a fine line between teaching them the tools, modeling those tools for them, and making sure that that's not fixing their problem, right? I think that there's a fine line there um, that's easy to, it's gray, right? Um, But I do think it's important to teach them those tools because they're going to be out in life and it would be nice if they have a whole entire uh, set of tools uh, available to them for the variety of situations that they have all right number four they're afraid that you're going to be upset or sad they don't want to make your life harder they don't want to bring worry and fear into your life and so of course we are going to feel things if you can learn to process your emotions before responding it will go a long way for your teen to want to come talk to you if you want to be the parent that you're 
Okay. This is a tall order for parents all around. Yeah. (laughs) Parenting is hard, man. Um, So for they are afraid you will feel upset or sad. And I think to your point, this is might be the one that I'm most on the fence Mm -hmm. about to a certain extent, but I'm curious what you guys think, uh, Woods. No, I would agree with Sesson's reaction. That's a, I'm not even sure sort of timing wise in a real lived, like real life experience that there is time and space between the moment where they share something with me and then like my pausing real life, going away, processing that and then coming back like clean slate. Um, But also I think that this is something that kids, especially kids who are really empathic and attuned and when you have a close relationship with your kid, they don't necessarily want to make you upset sometimes that's they don't want you to be upset with them but sometimes it's really like I know it's going to make you sad or I know it's going to make you angry at what happened at school or and I don't like that's a lot uh but also it's not the worst thing in the world for them to see us have emotional reaction because it is a form of like I heard you and I'm taking what you're saying seriously to the point where I'm having emotions reacting to it and I that's going to maybe move me to action at a time where you need me to advocate for you too, right? And I can also, when I'm having emotion, model that that doesn't need to th- swamp our conversation. I can show you I'm angry and I can show you that I'm sad. Uh, and also I can still self-soothe and stay a part of that conversation and have that be helpful. Uh, and I think it's probably unreasonable for parents to process reactions separate from a kid yeah and I think you also lose a lot of uh grist for learning modeling that I really like modeling self-soothing I think that it is so critical as long as your self-soothing doesn't necessarily involve punching a hole in the wall I think then we're getting in the realm of like anger issues um but Sesson I want to hear what you have to say first yeah I 100% support that and I'm really transparent with um when I am working on self-soothing, when I'm struggling with self-soothing or when I haven't self-soothed and then I have to go back and explain. I recognize I didn't, I should have, you know, so there's a lot of that, but, you know, my goal is to explain to my child how I'm on that journey as well in those moments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in life, sometimes I say, you know, oh, what you said was a lot. And I'll explain, like, I'm feeling you know, these things, but I will get over it. And then if I need a break, I'll say, oh, I've got to disappear for two minutes to go scream into a pillow. I'll be back. I say, <laughs> you know, I'm very honest. And, yeah. and just so he knows, like, it's okay to feel the emotion, but it's how you react to right. it. And in those moments where I don't do such a good job, I'll go back and say, you know, I didn't handle that very well. I'm human. I'm sorry. But I will let him see the, the process as it unfolds too a little bit. So he can, again, build those tools for himself but it's an impossible thing just to not feel what some level of you know reaction when you hear something really distressing but I acknowledge I'm feeling something I'm trying to really calm myself right now I'm having a hard time whether it's something he's done or something that's happened to him yeah Yeah. and it is hard because you don't want I mean I could see a situation that this person is talking about where like if you have a strong reaction they're like oh I'm not telling him about my friend's crazy antics again so finding what that boundary looks like but um, I agree for the most part what you guys saying I think having emotions is fine as a parent Um, I have a funny example about this the other day me and my two oldest were walking to my office and my six-year-old says mommy do you know what f-u-c-k means and I said I do how do you know what that means 
And he was like, oh, I've known it for a while. And I said, that's a bad word. And he was like, I know. And so I started asking a question, who taught you this? Where did you learn? Because he knows how to spell it. Excuse me. You could barely read it. You know what this word is? What is happening? Um, and so when I looked at my oldest, I said, do you know what that word means? She was like, yeah, I've known for a while. And I said, why didn't you tell me? She was like, because I know it's a bad word. I just didn't want to say it. And then I also realized, I mean, I had a, it wasn't like terribly aggressive. I was just like, oh, really? This word? Okay. Because I was trying to be a little funny about it. And then I also realized, you know, it actually doesn't bother me that much. Like he, they definitely are going to have to learn at some point. There was kind of like a societal mores informing my reaction, like kids shouldn't cuss. And so, I mean, this was like on our five minute journey. These are all of the emotions and thoughts that I had. Um... And I said, you know what, I, just so you know, I'm not mad that you know. I was just surprised that you knew because I didn't know that you knew that. I was just surprised. But you guys know it's a bad word, right? And we don't really say it. It's okay to know what it is and hear it. And so then we had a conversation about why adults can say it and kids can't. And, you know, that's always an awkward conversation. But it was interesting. I had to reevaluate my expectation or my what was influencing me to like be a little bit upset about that and then realizing well at least he learned it like he's not going to be like surprised somewhere down the road like uh oh my I didn't know that was a bad word like my children aren't going to grow up in like a cave they I intentionally put them in a school where maybe they are around kids a little bit rougher than what they would experience down on the farm um so anyway this uh, one really reminded me of that and then I had a reaction but then later on, I was like, I just want you to know I was surprised, not mad. And it is what it is. So, yeah, it's, I'm sure they appreciate it. You can come back and reflect on it. I think Dre just gives me that look like, OK, sure. And then but I feel like he's taking note. He's like, OK, she's showing that she's human. She errors, too. And that means I can error and I can be OK. Like, and that's important that we yes. do that because my my parents never acknowledged oh. their overreactions. Their errors. It was also so funny that my oldest was like, of course, I know what that word is, mom. I've known it for like years. And yeah. I said, years? <laughs> what? Like before COVID, mom, I knew about it. What? Before COVID, that's funny. Life before COVID, that's funny. I knew about Life it off the then. farm too, apparently. Like, was she allowed them off the farm a few times to meet with Very the Very little. Children? Anyway... So that's all for now. As always, thanks for listening to Attach Room. Call us, email us, or get at us on all the social medias and check out the bonus content on Patreon. Send us any relationship advice you've received and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.